Welcome to Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we find meaning and even a little bit of magic in the mess of life. Thanks for joining me on Little Detours with Regina Brett. I'm your host, Regina Brett, and today we're talking with Monica Robbins, Senior Health Correspondent for WKYC-TV in Cleveland. Monica has spent nearly 30 years as a broadcast journalist, telling the stories of other people. This year, she told her story. In October of 2019, Monica broke the news that she had been diagnosed with a brain tumor and would be undergoing surgery to remove it. And yes, as the health reporter, she did the story on her own brain tumor, not knowing what the outcome might be. She wanted to be someone else's survival guide. Monica is a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We in Cleveland forgive her for that. She enjoys weightlifting, running, riding her Harley Davidson motorcycle. She's also the lead singer for two bands, the classic rock band, Monica Robbins and the Whiskey Kings, and the country band, the Ninja Cowboys. I love that name. Monica is a six-time Emmy Award recipient, and she joined WKYC in 1998. As a health reporter, she covered countless stories about illness, medical mysteries, and healing. This time, she was the one whose life was on the line. Monica, thanks for joining us. Oh, Regina, thank you so much for having me here. Well, what a journey you've been on, and I want to thank you for sharing it publicly. That's a huge thing. It's one thing to be a journalist covering stories about other people, but to put your story out there. What made you decide to really go public deeply with this? You know, I I think one of the reasons I I went public was the fact that I I knew I was going to be gone for so long, and I, I didn't know what was going to happen and and honestly i i had started taking time off and and channel 3 was going through so many changes uh with new employees coming in and and a logo change and people started wondering where i was and um i think they thought i had been let go so my boss said you know i think it's time we break the news and you've known me for a long time and and i never wanted to be the story I certainly prefer telling the sto- other people's stories, but I think with this particular story, it, it was something that I had to explain where I was. And then when I thought about it, I had met so many people over the years, you and your daughter Gabe included, who shared with me some of your amazing t- stories and what you've gone through. And the bravery of other people and the grace and dignity that people had shown me as they went through their own medical journeys truly gave me the strength to, to go through mine. And also the reactions I received from telling those stories basically told me that if I share this, maybe I could help somebody else. And that was the driving force for why I decided to go forward and do it. And I have to tell you, Monica, when I shared my uh, breast cancer journey and that I had the BRCA1 gene and told that story, my daughter had the gene, you had such compassion. I'm getting goosebumps. You were so kind and loving. It was never about the story. It was more about the heart of the story. And there's a difference. And that's the, that's one thing you're so good at is, is telling the story in a way that comes from the heart and touches the heart. I, I think what people react to is the person. They don't react to the illness. They react to the person because you could be somebody's sister, somebody's, you know, mom, somebody's daughter. And 
I think when we tell these types of stories, you know, of course I want to get the important information in there from the, from the medical professional, but to get somebody to listen, it's the person who is going to make them listen. They're going to listen to whoever it is who's telling their story um, more so than they're going to listen to the doctor. And, you know, every time I've done a medical story, someone will tell me that the person you did, you know, they'll remember the name, they'll remember Regina, but they won't remember the doctor's name. And, and the question I'll get is, can you give me the name of the doctor? Not the, not the person in the story. So I think uh, people tell stories and people relate to people. And so without a patient, I can't really tell a decent story. So tell us how your story started. When did you first notice that something was wrong with your body? So it, it really started about two and a half years ago. I, you know, I have allergies like so many other people. And every month I go get uh, uh, shots. I have a, a severe bee allergy. So I get venom shots every month. And I saw my allergist and every morning I was waking up and my eye would be swollen and and then it was starting to tear chronically. And, you know, she, I'm, I happened to be, when I did the uh, allergy panel, it came back that I'm pretty much allergic to everything but grass and dogs. <laughs> and of course I have a cat and I'm allergic to cats and the cat sleeps on me. So, you know, basically she said, get rid of the cat or, you know, he can't sleep in the bedroom with you anymore. And I wasn't going to get rid of the cat. So we, you know, I started putting a towel down to give him his own space and, but it, it wasn't really making any difference. And then, you know, she gave me medication and I tried that and everything she gave me, it worked for a little bit, but then it just kept getting progressively worse. And finally, one day uh, last June, I had just bumped into her at my regular appointment and I said, uh, hey, do you have anything stronger because this is getting worse? And I'd also been to my ophthalmologist and I asked about the tearing and they basically told me I just had dry eye and that's why my eye was tearing. And when I told her it, it was getting worse, it wasn't getting better. And then she asked me, wait a minute, it's just one eye. I said, yeah. And she said, that's not allergies. So she suggested I go see a, um, an optical plastic surgeon. And of course, you know, I didn't even know that specialty existed at the time. And I start doing research because that's what I do. And I start thinking, oh, well, maybe I'm going to get an eye lift, you know, and <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe the levator muscle in my eyelid had collapsed and, uh, you know, I'm getting older. And I thought, oh, well, they're going to fix it and I'm going to get an eye lift. So I went in kind of excited to see this plastic surgeon. And the first thing he said to me was he, he did measurements and then he looked me straight in the eye, literally, and said, Monica, you have uh, ocular Graves disease. And that was an incurable and untreatable thyroid disorder. And, you know, I, I looked at him like, wait, what? What are you talking about? And he said that um, I didn't. Yeah, I, I said, uh, how, how can you be sure? You know, you didn't run any tests. And he said, typically, this is something that is clinically diagnosed. It's not something that would show up on a blood test because I'd had my thyroid checked a few months earlier and nothing showed up 
irregular, but he sent me for additional testing. And then he, he told me he was 99.9% sure that I had ocular Graves disease, but he was going to send me for a CT scan just to rule everything out. So I literally said, you're telling me I either have, you know, an untreatable thyroid disorder that could potentially make me blind or I have a brain tumor. And he said, yeah. So that was, you know, the end of June. And, you know, it hit me like a ton of bricks that here I was thinking it was just basic allergies and then hoping I was going to get an eye lift. And then my world just stopped. Let me pause for a moment, Monica, because that feeling when you hear that word, for me, it was cancer. For you, the word tumor or your vision, losing your vision, everything seems to just like the brakes get put on life. How do you navigate that moment where you suddenly realize life's never going to be the same? You know, I did not appreciate hearing that there was no treatment and there was nothing I could do. So when I initially thought I had a thyroid disorder, being told there was no treatment and and no cure or, or anything did not sit well with me. So immediately I started hitting the computer and hitting the books and started doing research. And I decided I I was going to try every other avenue and, you know, look for alternative therapies, look for whatever I could find that could at least give me a a chance. So the first thing I did was sign up for functional medicine and I I was going to put myself through a, a detox. And I was doing that like medically supervised because I thought, you know, who knows, maybe, you know, the very least who, you know, I could use it. Um, I'm a sugar addict. So that, you know, that was probably going to be helpful anyway. And I just thought I would do whatever I could to get myself in the best shape possible to deal with whatever it was I had to deal with. And I'm just not one to be told, you know, there's no answer. That, That just doesn't work for me. And then I had to wait a week for the CT scan. And a few days before the CT, it hit me that, um, you know, just uh, three weeks before my, my father passed away, we had discovered he had a brain tumor and he was too frail for us to, to really do any research on it or, or, you know, even do a biopsy. And it was in the center of his brain. So we couldn't really get anything, you know, any more information on it. And then, you know, he passed away. So right before that CT scan, it hit me. I I knew I had a brain tumor. I knew I didn't have a thyroid disorder. You just sort of knew like almost like an intuitive knowing. Yeah. I I, I really, you know, it it was, I I don't know how to explain it. It was, um, you know, it, it was just some, it was literally, I just woke up one morning and I, that thought crossed my mind that, you know, do you remember, you know, Norm, my dad had a brain tumor and I thought, I bet you that's what it is because the thyroid thing, there was no family history of, of thyroid issues. It just didn't make sense at all to me, you know, and the, and the, the main diagnosis for that was the fact that my left eye was protruding out of my eye or out of my head rather. And that was the measurements he had taken. So he, he was able to show me that my, my left eye was protruding and, you know, I, I didn't know what that meant 
but I just started thinking back that, yeah, I was just convinced this wasn't a thyroid thing. This was a brain tumor. And the, and when I had the CT scan, I asked the tech if I could see the scan and uh, he refused. And I, I found, I found that odd, you know, because every other scan I've ever had, I've always been able to see. And then he said to me, he goes, would you even know what you were looking at? And I said, I, I don't know. I might, you know, and, um, and I, then I had to wait. He, he told me my doctor would contact me, you know, in a few hours and the doctor didn't contact me until four thirty the next afternoon right before, as I was putting a story together for the six o'clock news. And I got the call while I was in the middle of the newsroom. You got the call in the middle of the newsroom. So what was that moment like for you to really finally kind of get that verdict? Um, well, I, I think I was grateful. I got it while I was at work because I, I had to keep my act together. You know, I, I, I really couldn't react. I was in a busy newsroom that was cramming to get a, a newscast on the air. And I'm notorious for taking phone calls and walking around the newsroom. So I, no one thought anything of me walking around the newsroom as I was, as I was talking to the doctor. So I, you know, I was getting all the information from the doctor and basically he was telling me there's a mass behind my left eye and you know, he was telling me that he could help me find a, a, a skull based surgeon that I was going to need to, to deal with this. And my mind is just reeling, you know, I'm going through a million and one different things. All I, all I knew was you have a mask behind your left eye and everything else just sort of faded away. It's like the and, Charlie Brown mom, womp, womp, womp. You don't it, even hear what's next. Yes, exactly. And, and all I, I just couldn't wait to just walk back to my computer and start doing research, but I knew I had to tell my bosses. And uh, so I hung up with the doctor and I called my two bosses into the green room. And, you know, I was, the funny thing was I, I have a very bizarre sense of humor and I was laughing and crying at the same time because part of it, I was, I was kind of relieved that I knew what it was. And now, now I knew what I had to do. So I told them that, you know, I, Hey, your health reporter has a brain tumor. And, uh, then I said, um, you know, we need to have a station contest to name it. <laughs> and they looked oh, at me. Tumor humor. Too yeah, much yeah they looked at me horrified and 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 they were just like this the horror the most horrible part about it was you know they were the first two I told and watching the color just drain out of their faces when I told them that that just hurt and and I know you you understand anybody who's gone through a life-threatening diagnosis understands the pain to tell somebody you care about what what you have and and that and then the fact you don't have any answers so I told them that and then you know I said hey and we're getting a new logo and we're you know we're changing everything I'm probably going to need an eye patch so we can put the new logo on my eye patch you know I was trying to make as light of the situation as I possibly could and then frankly I, I said and um, I don't think I'm going to make the six o'clock news today so I have to go home and find a brain surgeon and so, you know, I left and I went home and then I, I had to tell Deke 
when I got home and he knew right away when I pulled in the driveway at 5:15 he knew that this wasn't good and when I got out of the car he said what is it and I I said let's go have a drink and he said it's a brain tumor and I said yeah so that's how I told him that is powerful. Well, I want to pause for just a moment. We're at the halfway mark already. So I want to thank all of you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Monica Robbins. I know you have many podcast choices, and I'm so grateful you chose to listen to mine. Uh, Monica, it's such a powerful story, um, and your husband, Zeke, to be there for you. Let's talk about the action phase. You know, that actually, you got the brain surgery. Now you got to go to surgery. We're talking nine hours of surgery. And you don't really know what's going to happen. You're not sure when you come out of it what what the next step is. Tell us about how you prepare for surgery and when you woke up, what you learned about yourself. Well, the first thing I needed to do was find a surgeon. And, you know, I, I, I found one. The interesting part of the whole story is that the type of tumor I had, um, the, the type of tumor is common. It was a meningioma but the location of my tumor was not. They see about four types of my type of tumor a year. So um, there aren't many surgeons locally who could really take that type out. And so I, I, you know, I was diagnosed at Cleveland Clinic. I stayed at Cleveland Clinic. I saw Dr. Pablo Racinos and, you know, he, he was great. But before I had the chance to see him, I found out I, I was diagnosed on July 2nd. So this was 4th of July week. And, and then I, I needed to get in as soon as possible. So I, I had called and then they, they had called me back the next day and they, they were gracious enough to get me in on, on that Friday. So I had two days to do research and I studied as much as I possibly could. All I knew mass behind my left eye, I figured out that I, my thought was that it was a sphenoid wing orbital meningioma. I did as much research as I could. I, I was looking at tumor resection videos. I was studying as much as I could. So when I walked into that meeting with him, he said to me, I know who you are. I know what you do. What do you think it is? And I, I told him and Deke starts yelling, you know, that he told me not to Google and because uh, I tell everybody not to Google and so you don't take your own advice. I love that, Monica. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, the difference is I think I know what to Google. So <laughs> I, I, you know, when I saw all of the, you know, I, I didn't see a whole lot of great things about my particular tumor, but I knew it was a very, very complex surgery and they were likely not going to be able to get it all. And I knew this was going to be one step of a, of a potentially very long journey and I told him all of that. And he just kind of looked at me and shook his head. And, and he said, you're exactly right. That's exactly what you have. And believe me when I tell you, I, I wish I wasn't right. But now we knew what I had. Now we knew where to go. And the first, the, the next thing I had done was I'd done my research on him. And I asked him, so how many of these have you done? And I also did my research on where he had done his fellowship. I actually, he had done his fellowship at Johns Hopkins. I called Johns Hopkins. 
I talked to the person he had done his fellowship under. And then I talked to university hospitals. I called, you know, Dr. Selman, who also knows how to do these. And, um, you know, I got second opinions and I got a third opinion. And, you know, when you're dealing with something this significant, this is, this was my life. And I tell people to do this. And that was where I did practice what I preached. And there is something about that really taking ownership of your body to not just trust the doctors and kind of surrender to them, but to really do your part. And, and I love that you were, you're, you were vigilant about that and very diligent to go after the, the right information, get the second opinions. And I think sometimes too, that gives you a sense of power. So you don't just feel like a victim of a, of a tumor or cancer or whatever you're facing in life. Once you can take action, you've got a little bit of power to face it. Yeah. And it was, it was one of the things where I, I, unfortunately I was in a position where I, I knew more than I wish I did. You know, I, I knew more than perhaps the average person might know. Um, and I had been in, because of my job, I had witnessed several brain surgeries. I knew exactly what I was going to undergo. So that actually brought me some, some calming as weird as that sounds, because I knew what to expect. And so when we put together the surgical plan and, and everything else, the one thing I, I asked um, the doctor was if I could wait. Fortunately for me, I had had two, C, two CT scans prior. And one was, uh, you know, I, I had broken my nose and another one was I had was in a car accident. And we were able to look at those CT scans. And even though I was never diagnosed, we saw the tumor on those two CT scans. So we knew I'd had this tumor at least a decade. And then within the last three years, it had grown significantly to start causing my eye to push out of my head. But this tumor was also on my carotid artery and it was on my optic nerve. And so we knew that when he went in to remove it, he wasn't going to be able to take that part of the tumor out because obviously that would put me in a risk for stroke or blindness. So the surgery lasts nine hours, your skull had some nerve damage. You wake up from surgery. Do you have a plate in your head? Did they have to close it? Oh yeah. I have three titanium plates in my head. So there was, um, can you feel like, Oh yeah, I could, yeah, I could, well, I could, I could feel initially now my body has, scarred over. So I, I, I kind of refer to that as my body has put the drywall over the, um, you know, construction site. So, so no, I, you can't feel them now, but, um, you know, it's, you go to the airport. Can you get through the security check? Yeah, actually, yeah. Titanium's non-ferrous metal. So it doesn't set off the alarm. So I'm very lucky with that. Yeah, no, I have three titanium plates. And the interesting thing is when they, when they, when they got in, into my skull, they realized that the majority of the tumor was in my bone. So they had to remove a significant part of my skull. And so one of the, I I opted to do some research studies while, while I was there because they can't really um, map these types of tumors yet, because had they been able to, they would have known before we went in that 
where the majority of the tumor was. So my tumor was um, like the thickness of the inside of a coconut and about the size of a pancake. Um, but it was smashed down and it was in, in the majority of it was in the bone. So they had to drill significantly, which is why the entire left half of my face and, and front part of my skull had significant nerve damage. And I'm still dealing with that now. So you've had some after effects and, and you also shared a, a side effect that I think was difficult, especially as a public person, that your hair started to fall out. Yeah. So I had a 10 inch scar and, you know, I was shocked, honestly, that they didn't really cut that much. You know, everybody thinks they shave your head when you have brain surgery, but they don't. They only cut where they need to. And one of the reasons is, is that if they cut too much and they nick you, you, you could risk infection. But what they don't tell you is that it's a intentional head trauma and the stress of the surgery um, and also where they had put the pins to hold my head down, you know, can cause hair loss. So it wasn't, it was probably three weeks after surgery that my hair started falling out. And I was taking showers and, you know, when I was finally allowed to take showers, I started noticing that I had this huge bald spot on, on the top of my head. And fortunately I did have some hair that could hide it, but I knew when I went back to work that I was going to have to do something. And this wasn't something that I was going to be able to get extensions to cover. Yeah. I had to go get a, a hair prosthetic and I thought, you know, after, after opening myself up and telling people that, you know, about the brain, brain tumor, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to hide this anymore because I figured I'm not the only one who, who's had medical hair loss and, and, or, um, you know, any, this could help anybody else who has a medical condition and hair loss. So again, I went back to, if I can help one person, and I, you know, I'm to the point now where you know, I'm a, I'm an open book. I don't care, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so that's yeah. the gift in what you do is that you can use your story and reach so many people and no matter what they're going through, a lot of it's the same kind of uh, action to take and the same kind of changes on the inside to take. Yeah. And that, and that was one of the things, and that story, I, I was blown away by the response it received and, and it went national and I, I received a ton of response from people all over the country who had no idea that something called a hair prosthetic existed. And now I, I think the bigger issue is that, you know, I would like to see insurance companies cover these things because that's fight. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's on my list of things to do. We just have to get through the pandemic first. So I want to move on to your music, okay? I've heard you sing. I've heard you play. You've got a great voice. You perform the national anthem in front of the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Indians, all kinds of places. How hard was it when you were going to get back on stage after having this time off, after, you know, dealing with the brain tumor, your vision, your hair, to get up there again? You talked a little bit about how hard it was to be on stage again. Well, one of the problems was the nerve damage had affected my, my upper palate and I couldn't feel it. And initially it felt like my palate was laying on top of my tongue and I didn't know if I was going to be able to sing. So I had been singing in bands longer than I've been doing television. So um, the stage was a very homey place for me and 
it's also my therapy. So I really wanted to get back, but I was scared to death. I, the last thing I wanted to do was go back and fail. So we, we went back, we did some rehearsals and um, high notes were incredibly painful initially. You know, we just readjusted the set list and we figured out what songs I could do. And then we went from there and it was amazing to me how quickly once, you know, it's like riding a bike. Once you get going, my body just followed suit and came back. You know, we just have a couple minutes left in Monica. I want to talk a little bit about self-care. You talked about how it's really important to put your body, your self-care first sometimes. Tell us what you do to, to take care of yourself. Well, honestly, I initially what I what I had been doing was I was being present. That was the lesson I learned. You know, I, I had no time to worry about the past. I didn't know if I was going to have a future. So the most comfortable place you can be truly is being present. And then you don't miss anything either. That was also the safest place for me to be. All I had to do was worry about the next 30 seconds. I didn't have to worry about what I was going to do in the next hour, the next two hours, the next day. All I worried about what, what I was going to do in the next five minutes. And that is a very good place to be and, and a very peaceful place to be. And it really gets rid of a lot of stress. So if people can learn how to do that, you know, and, and believe me, it was a lot of work. It's not (laughs) an easy thing to do, especially for somebody who's, you know, a a chronic multitasker and constantly trying to think of what am I going to do this week, next week, next month, and, you know, six months down the road. All I cared about was what am I going to do in the next five minutes? Beautiful. You know, there's one thing you said, uh, you were quoted as saying, the fact that I survived all this, now I've got to figure out what the universe wants to do with me. Do you feel a different sense of purpose now? You know, I now feel like the universe put me where I'm supposed to be. And ironically, I find it very interesting that I went through all of this last year and then I come back and a pandemic hits. And of all things, this is what I really, truly feel like I was supposed to be back to be able to help people get through this as well. And the unfortunate part of this, I feel like my self-care has been put on hold because of this pandemic. But if I, if I can help people get through what we're dealing with right now and, you know, basically say, Hey, look, I, I survived brain surgery. Let's not sweat the little stuff. (laughs) You know, we are going to get through this you know, I know it's not easy. Nothing is easy. Believe me. I didn't know if I was going to wake up, but I did. And every step was difficult. But when I woke up, I couldn't see, I was blind for two months and I didn't know if my vision was going to come back and it, it came back slowly. And it's, it's sort of like it prepared me for sort of what we're going through now. Granted, it's not the same thing and it's very difficult, but on the same token, I do understand what people are going through 
And I, I do find that I'm in a place now where I can tell people just hang in there. I know it's not easy, but we, we will get through this. Well, thank you, Monica, for show, uh, sharing your story. And, you know, you had such a huge crisis of your own that I think it did kind of give you boot camp for what we're facing now. Uh, tell us how to find you on your website. Where, where can people go to learn more about you? People can go to uh, MonicaRobbins.com to uh, come see one of the bands hang in there as soon as the governor opens up the clubs again. And we'll be uh, we'll be back out rocking it out and staying six feet away from one another, I'm sure. <laughs> And, um, and then obviously you can find me at at WKYC.com and, uh, you know, I hope people stay up with our coronavirus coverage and, and anything, uh, we can do to help. That's what we're going to be doing. It's been great coverage. And I'll have links to those on my website, reginabrett.com. You know, my biggest takeaway today is to know that whatever life gives you, whatever detour, whatever crisis when you are able to share it and help somebody else, then it it makes sense out of it almost. It gives you kind of another way to be useful in the world. So Monica, thank you for sharing your journey. And I want to close with your answer to this question. Monica, what's the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? Wake up smiling. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.